This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business, supply chain and globalization, and the effects these have had on the way we work, play and live over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience, both for me and for my interviewees from around the world. In today's program, we will be talking to Professor Marc Sachon of the ESE Business School in Barcelona, Spain. Marc is a professor in the Production Technology and Operations Management Department and holds a PhD in Industrial Engineering and Engineering Management from Stanford University, as well as an MBA from ESE University of uh, Navarra. Um, at ESA, Mark teaches operations strategy, industry 4.0 and operations management. Um, and some of those modules actually I've done myself and I'd highly, highly recommend them. So uh, welcome, Mark, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Well, good to be here with you, Patrick, and uh, good to see you and hear you again. Likewise, likewise. So Mark, Mark Sachon, uh, German with a French name and surname. So is there a story behind that? Yeah, I mean, you know, a typical story of, of the history of, of Europe. Uh, so the family originally came from Lyon and uh, were a group of Huguenots. So they didn't really coincide with the religion that was the official religion in France. And therefore, they decided to leave France and go to a place which, you know, against uh, the you know expectations of many people was really one of the most liberal areas back then in uh, in Europe. And that was Germany in particular Prussia. And so they went to Prussia and that's, you know, how I came to carry this wonderful name because my, my family comes from Prussia and, you know, originally, as I said, from Lyon. And each time I drive from Barcelona to, to Germany to visit my parents or my parents-in-law passing through Lyon, I always think I should stop, you know, and do some some <laughs> searching, you know, if yeah. I can find a restaurant uh, 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 with my name because, uh, they're famous for their good food in Lyon. Yeah, there are there are famous. There are many people here in Ireland who have uh, French-sounding surnames, like Blancheflower, for example, is, exactly. is one one in particular. And uh, they are also descendants of uh, Huguenots, and they brought the linen industry to Ireland. And um, Ulster, Northern Ireland, became very famous for its linen production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's that that whole topic of linen and textile production in Ireland and the UK. Is, uh, is very interesting because it relates to some of the research that I'm doing right now into the history of uh, industry and so forth. But perhaps we'll touch upon that later. Okay. So uh, how did you get then from being uh, an engineer, a young engineer in Germany, uh, to being the professor of uh, business school in, in Spain in, in, the, in 2021? How did that happen? Yeah, in a blink, you know, that's the <laughs> in a blink, yeah. No, I mean, it, it was. It's a funny story. When I when I studied aerospace engineering for my master's degree in Germany, um, and and uh, and and did work in Airbus and 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 some other related companies during during those studies, um, I also kind of um, during the final years worked for IBM Germany in the headquarters back then, based in Stuttgart, um, and while working there every morning. Uh, actually, for the for the executive board, I had to do the the daily press briefing for them uh, year after year. Um, so um, I heard about an MBA, huh? and back then I'm talking about the 1980s in Germany. MBA, nobody knew what an MBA was, and uh, so I had three alternatives: either finish my master and then kind of uh, work, make some money, or finish my master, do a PhD in Stuttgart, or finish my master and do an MBA. 
uh, working, you know, I didn't feel fancy too much. And then uh, doing a PhD in Stuttgart, I didn't fancy too much either because I'm from the north of Germany where we speak a very different type of German than in Stuttgart, which always is a little bit difficult for me. And so then this idea of the MBA came around. And so I decided, okay, let's finish my master's here and then go off and do an MBA to learn something about business. And it was pretty much, I think, the best decision I ever made. So th that brought you to ESA, did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then basically uh, in this whole uh, research about business schools, I I found out pretty soon, you know, that in Europe, basically at back then at least, there were uh, four business schools that were really good. One based in the UK, one based in France, one based in Italy, and one based in Spain. Um, since I already spoke English fluently, basically I decided to go against, uh, you know, uh, going to, to the UK. And that left uh, Italy, France and Spain because I wanted to learn another, another language fluently. And so then I looked at those schools and uh, decided to visit the one in France and, and, and the one here in Spain. And that was Jesse. And uh, and basically, um, it was it was once I saw both of the schools, it was very clear to me that I had to come to ESA. So and then you you went from being a student of ESA to later becoming a, prof a professor at ESA. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good story. Yeah. Um, well, basically, I did my my MBA here. Uh, graduated and as I was about to graduate and I had wonderful offers on my table you know to to go into consulting primarily and all of these offers were back in Germany and uh, and even today even today what you will see with most of the international students that come to to ESA for their MBA and are not Spaniards pretty much every one of them would like to stay in Spain after finishing the MBA because um, you know the life down here is so so wonderful And so I also wanted to stay. And, uh, and so as I had these offers on my desk, suddenly ES approached me and told me, no, we believe you would be a good professor. Have you considered doing a PhD and becoming an academic? Uh, and, uh, and then back then, I hadn't really, to be honest, I hadn't really considered this. But then I thought, you know what, and being young and crazy, I thought, you know what, you know, the worst that can happen is I stay here for another year. And then, you know, if, it, if, if I don't like this or whatever, I go and become a consultant anyway. Yeah. And then I stayed at ESA for one year as a lecturer. I saw that that's something that I could like. Um, and then I applied to various uh, universities in, in the United States. And I was very, very lucky that I was accepted by pretty much all of them. And, uh, and several of them gave me a scholarship also, including Stanford. And, you know, once you see Stanford, I mean, <laughs> there is no discussion where you go to. Eh? Yeah. Even if it's Harvard or MIT or something, I mean, Stanford beats them all, <laughs> period. Yeah. And um, so for those then outside Spain listening to us, uh, maybe not familiar with ESA so much, what sets it apart from other international business schools? And why has it had such success internationally with foreign students? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And probably a, a, a great way to illustrate that would be to go back to why I decided back then to, to, to go to ESA for my MBA. And that hasn't really changed. Uh, the decision for many students today is exactly the same. When back then in, in, the, in the summer, early summer of 1991, I came to ESA to take a look and decide, should I go to France or the French business school or should I go to ESA? 
Um, there was a lady uh, at ESA called Pat Robinson. She has long since retired. and uh, But she was so friendly. She was so friendly. It was a day, I still remember that day like it were yesterday. It was sunny. It was, uh, campus was already pretty much phased down because uh, the, the, the term had ended. But there were still some students, professors on campus, and she showed me around. And we, she was super friendly, absolutely super friendly, took her time and whatever. And that was in sharp contrast to how I, how I had been received at the school in France. And so I decided, okay, you know, if they treat you like this, this is the place where I need to go. And I can say from experience that this is something that's somehow in the DNA of yes, that we really try to make people welcome. We really try to go the extra mile, um, you know, and not uh, be, for example, professors who are completely aloof and, you know, not approachable by participants and so forth. Quite the contrary, we enjoy it very, very much to engage in talks uh, with, with participants, uh, whatever program it may be, because we always learn something. And I know there are different um types of students who who attend the school but what would be two or three of the key profiles the type of people who are who are going to ESE? well that depends on the program that we're looking at right within the school we differentiate between the um, degree programs which are the three different MBA programs that we have and the executive programs. So let's start with the degree, degree programs. So there we have the full-time MBA, the executive MBA, and the global executive MBA. And in terms of age and uh, experience, um, they start with the full-time MBA, where you have an average age of, of, of participants around 27 years when they start. They have about three to four years uh, work experience. Then you go to the executive MBA. They have uh, 10 years of work experience on average. In the full-time MBA, they're super international, about 60, more than 60 nationalities from around the globe. In the executive MBA, due to the fact that they come to campus every Saturday, every Friday and Saturday, and do the program in parallel to their work, uh, they're more regional. So they're mostly Spanish or Spanish-speaking, even though we do have participants who fly in I don't know, from 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 uh, Austria, for example, or right now in the executive MBA that I'm teaching right now, I have participants from Bolivia, you know. Um, and then we have the, the global executive MBA where the participants are slightly older than that. And they have, you know, around 13, 15 years work experience. They're already pretty far advanced in their career. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that's that's and and they're super international. And that's that was the first program that we did 20 years ago when we launched it. That was really online, uh, where we had from the beginning online modules and residential modules. So that's why we have 20 years of experience of doing online programs. Okay. And what's the school doing now to adapt to the restrictions imposed by by COVID? You know, to help it continue its mission, provide quality learning for its students, and so on. Well, we. Um, we basically, the faculty, uh, we, we, when, when COVID hit us, at first, of course, we were very afraid and shocked. But then during confinement, we, we thought, wow, this is wonderful. We can stay home and do research and write books, you know, and, and write cases and whatever. But uh, our dean and the executive board are extremely smart and they know and if these guys, if they get into this mode, we'll never see them back. And so they started dumping projects on us. And one of the first projects was uh, to, to really kind of come up with a way how we can open the school again, put in protocols in place, do an analysis of capacities, process flows, bottlenecks, and I don't know what. 
and then all the way down to the typical, you know, almost Japanese uh, production methodology like way of identifying uh, if you come here, you have to stand here and keep that distance, move there and so forth. And they map the whole campus with that, you know, put in place uh, scanners, temperature scanners, you know, bars that you can only go through if you're, you get a barcode to scan and or your card that you're a member of ESA that opens the stuff. And that took us about two and a half, three months. Uh, and then by June, July last year, we opened the campus again, like limited on a limited scale. And we took in the MBAs who had been in their apartments, and this was really tough for them, you know, 60 nationalities living in some small apartments uh, for students, and they could not get out because they were in complete confinement. So back then, you know, they were really hitting each other. Who can do the, daily gro the, the weekly grocery shopping, right? And so we let them back onto campus to try, are these protocols working? And, uh, and uh, again, you know, it's, it's a great achievement of my, of my colleagues. Uh, the work that they've done, in a, and, and some of them really have worked back then, uh, two and a half, three months around the clock. It was absolutely uh, uh, horrendous, but it all worked. And so when the summer was over in September, October, we could actually take in a new generation of MBA students, which we have now, 350 new MBA students, additional to the 350 that uh, basically were already on campus before the summer. Um, and it's working out splendidly. So we have the MBA on campus, we have executive programs on campus, um, all with distancing. Uh, so few, much fewer people, uh, far fewer people than before, but they can come to campus and they want to come to campus. And what kind of changes then in the education model that turned out to be the po po for the positive, so force changes, do you see becoming like permanent uh, as a result of COVID? Well, one of the things that, that really has become permanent is the, the online element. I mentioned earlier that 20 years ago, um, when we launched the Global Executive MBA, um, and that from its original inception was partly online, partly you know, residential. But now, of course, this whole online has received a boost. And what we have been experimenting with over the past year, basically, is you know, how to really use online as a, as a, as a, as a tool to um, enrich the learning journey for our participants. Um, and there are elements there that, you know, before were unthinkable and not now are being done. Why? Because particularly for company programs, where we design a customized program for a company, in the past, if we would have told them, you know what, and we do a session where we invite somebody online to give a lecture, that would have not been accepted. Now, with, with, uh, with uh, COVID, the companies know themselves that this can actually be very, very good. And, uh, and just uh, this morning, I was talking to a colleague where we are pro uh, organizing, um, we are in charge of a program for a huge automotive manufacturer from Germany, uh, based in the southern part of Germany. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and it's, it's completely online. And we're bringing in speakers from China, from Silicon Valley, from Munich, from I don't know where. And this is something that before was not possible, and now it is. Yeah, it's interesting. So what, what has surprised you most out of this whole COVID thing over the last year? Um, well, um, the, yeah, the absolute key surprise was that the cost of the, of the sessions are far higher than, than we expected. So if you want to do a good online session, you know, not like here, you know, I'm sitting here in my home office, you know, I have the camera running and so forth, and it's halfway decent. Mm -hmm. You want to do a really professional online session that's extremely expensive because you need not just the professor 
uh, you know, that where she might be, you know, giving a good lecture or a good interactive session or even a case study. But you need a camera a person, you need a producer, uh, you need somebody to take care of the chats and the questions that come in. And then you always need another person, you know, or two to, to support with some other things. So you're talking about four, five, six support people were before, and you know this from your own experience, when you had a session on campus at ES, you had the faculty member there, and then perhaps you had one more person in the back that was the program coordinator, and that was it. Hmm. Yeah, it's like it's like producing a TV program almost, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely like producing a TV program, because then the other thing also is that uh, you need you know, to really do something fancy, you need a studio. Uh, and so uh, we, of course, at ES, we have what we call the virtual classroom. Uh, we have developed that a couple of years ago and we renovated, well, not renovated, but boosting it continuously with up-to-date technology. And now the plan is, of course, to have more of those. And before, because before COVID, one was enough. It was really state-of-the-art and still is state-of-the-art. But now we see that we need more of them um, because that's, you know, where, where the whole thing is going. Not that this will be the only way of doing classes, but a key way. And that just to, to uh, close the loop brings me to the other key insight of this whole COVID. Uh, and that's that when we speak to our client companies uh, or the participants in the flagship programs, so programs that we do for company owners or executive board members, um, it's always the same message that we get. Um, we don't want to do this online. We want to be there in the classroom with the other participants so that we can meet over lunch, uh, you know, perhaps even grab a coffee from the coffee machine, you know, everything with a with hand sanitizer, of course, masks and so forth, but walk around on the terrace overlooking Barcelona, get some fresh air and just be there together. They do not want to do this in their office at home or somewhere else where everybody's just there virtually. They don't want that. Okay. And a lot of the people who listen to this uh, podcast, the kind of supply chain uh, professionals, which modules within the different offerings that you have at ESA have a supply chain element that would be attractive to people like that? Well, as a result of COVID and all the online elements and so forth, we're currently in a process of redesigning all our uh, um, short program offerings at ESA, we always differentiate between long programs that last over several months and then you meet every week or you have modules of one week dispersed with a couple of weeks in between. Um, so those uh, is a different topic. But uh, since you refer to what we would call a short focus program, um, namely where we deal with a specific topic, you know, I don't know, finance and marketing and so forth. And in the area of operations, uh, we never really had a program 100% dedicated to, to just supply chain. We had a program that was running for more than 10 years called Operation Excellence. Uh, and all these programs are now in a state of being redesigned to take them not online, but to, you know, to do a blended version where we do some residential, some online, sometimes, you know, depending on how COVID goes, it might be completely online still but to really reap the benefits of all the technology or all the things that you do now with online 
and that takes some time. Huh? So my 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 short answer to your question is right now there is no such program, but stay tuned because there will be. Okay, we might just uh, step away from ESA just a little, and I just wanted to get your perspective on some of the things that are going on in the in the wider world. So, what would you say are the most interesting trends in industry that we should be paying attention to for the future? You know, including some that may some that may predate COVID or perhaps have been accelerated by COVID. Well, obviously, the topic of digitalization uh, is still uh, on the top of the agenda for many reasons. And it will continue to be so. And, and, you know, it's like all the programs that I teach in, it's always there. Or when I meet with companies and talk to them to design programs for them or whatever, or even background talks that I do a lot in the automotive industry, it's always there. It's always there. So that topic, you know, is has been accelerated even uh, through through COVID. The second topic is is this whole notion that the globalization, as we know it, I think has 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 I wouldn't say ended, I would say it changed its course, it changed its path. Um, And the motivation for that is that if you look at the uh, global economic landscape, what you see is that the center of economy, if you 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 do a center gravity, uh, if you go back the last 200 years, it was always Europe and North America, that's where it was. Uh, And now that center gravity is moving towards Asia, very heavily towards China, China will be the global dominant powerhouse in the economy. There is no way that that even the Americans can can avoid this. This there is no chance. If you go to China and you see what they're doing, there is no way that the that the Americans and much less so the Europeans can prevent this. But it's not a problem. It's not a problem. But as a result of this, the value chains are changing, and as a result of the COVID crisis, it has been a wake up call for us to really critically question ourselves. Do we really want to have value chains for critical goods? And critical goods are not just medicine or pharmaceuticals. Critical goods can also be chips for the automotive industry or batteries for this whole electric vehicle boom. Do we want to have value chains where all of these critical components come from Asia? Or should we perhaps rethink and, you know, to a degree, even reindustrialize Europe? And and my my passion here is really Europe. to, to make sure that we have you know a strong kind of position in that in that in those industries so you're talking about almost a, a transition of globalization from global value chains to regionalized value chains within regions such as Europe Asia North America and so on is that is that more or less what you're if, if you look long term definitely because if you one of the topics that I'm really heavily involved in is, is industry for zero and one of the things that is let's say the holy grail of industry for zero is to reduce the lead times um, and and thereby become more flexible and of course, if you reduce the lead times and then you bring in new technologies that are crucial to, to industry for zero, zero, like new robotics, new types of factory automation, 3D printing, and I don't know what, all of this takes out one of the key factors that made Asia such an important player, namely labor cost. Right. Uh, and the Asians, especially China, 
is, is, you know, they're completely aware of this. And so China is the biggest investor in robot technology in the world by far. Uh, and like, if you look at where do the robots go, basically they're sold like, you know, truckload, shiploads to, 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 to China. And they're building up their own companies to produce robots because they know this is, this is crucial for the future. Yeah. So I guess COVID is accelerating that, but there were trends, there were environmental trends, there were geopolitical trends already driving that agenda. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, geopolitical trends, I think um, every top manager and, and, you know, in general, every manager, any decision maker in, in business has to read the books uh, of the speeches of Xi Jinping, the chairman of the Communist Party in China. Uh, these books, uh, it's by now three volumes. Uh, they get published every couple of years. Um, the last volume, the third volume was just published last year. Uh, and if you look at those books, if you read the first two books, um, and they're easy to read, why? Because they're full of speeches that the chairman held over the past almost 20 years. And each speech is between five and 10 pages. And so you can easily say, I'm going to read this uh, speech today, and that's it. So you don't have to read the whole book front to back, because on top of that, the speeches are organized by topics. So, for example, the Communist Party in China, um, and, you know, the topic that every manager has to read, industrial policy. Uh, and if you read those books, one of the things that you see is that in the first book, everything that he spoke about in the first book and even in the second book has pretty much become true now, by now. Uh, so, again, the Chinese vision, vision is not five years, you know, an election period like we typically have in the West, like four or five years. The vision is 50 to 100 years. Uh, and they follow through with that vision. And if you then read the third book, then you should feel a little bit uncomfortable and perhaps even scared. Huh? But that's the homework that I think every manager has to do. Interesting. Great recommendation. So we'll change pace uh, yet again. So outside of work, when you're not uh, teaching or doing investigation and so on, research, um, what kind of things do you like to do in terms of hobbies and pastimes? Well, you know, uh, uh, Patrick, you might remember that... Um, Eddie is a, a professor, never really stops to work. So our board has us working around the clock, you know. Uh, I think think of those comics, you know, where you have the the, the people in the in the rowing boat, rowing day and night. That's that's the professor's Eddie is, you know. But jokes aside, of course, you know, there are some free moments and uh, that I, those I like to spend with the family. Um, those I like to, to run a little bit. And I love my rowing machine that I use heavily during the COVID crisis. And then... I'm one of those eternal optimists hoping that one day I will finally learn how to play golf. So far, it's been avoiding me, you know, to get down that path, but I will not give up. I will not give up. You know, Ireland is a paradise for golf players. I know, so, I know. so many golf, golf, golf courses here. I know. Um, have you read anything lately that inspired you that you would recommend to listeners? Yeah, you know, as you can imagine, we as, as, as professors at a business school, one of the real luxuries we have is we're paid for reading. And mostly, of course, uh, academic papers, but we also read a lot of books out of interest. And in, in one book that I like very much that I've been that, that was published in 2019 by a colleague from, from Oxford University is called The Technology Trap. The author is Carl Benedict Fry. He's an expert on, on basically the history of, of uh, science or technology and economics. So he's on that interface. He's an economist by training. Uh, and it's a really wonderful book. So in that book, for example, there is a lot of talk about the textile industry and, and its crucial element as part of the, of the Industrial Revolution uh, in, on the British Isles. 
and uh, and therefore you know very highly recommendable very well written um and and a real a real a real nice thing but i have to warn you it's 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 full of information okay <laughs> and, and and you know a couple of hundred pages long so don't think you can read this over the weekend yeah th- th- thanks for the recommendation i'll search for that on audible i love to listen to books like that as yeah. i walk yeah, I, uh, I, w- I walk every day and I just listen, listen to the same here. I listen, I listen to lots of book on Audible and, and I have an author there also that I like le- very, very much. Um, he wrote a book, amongst others, The Man Who Loved China, about a great Brit uh, called Joseph. Um, uh, uh, non, I can't forget. I can't remember the second name now, but really good stuff. I completely agree with you. So uh, where can people find out more about uh, ESA, the programs, the modules, and your own work, research, your thinking, publications, and so on? Uh, well, obviously, the best way to do that is go to ESA's webpage, www.iese.edu, edu like education. Uh, and uh, on that webpage, you can find everything. The webpage is in several languages. So, um, you know, go and change the language to English or something. Um, and then, you know, you can find information about the graduate programs, the MBA programs, the PhD program, the executive programs, the long ones, or the executive programs, the short ones, both in Spanish, English, and, and whatever language you want to have. Um, and the different campuses we have, uh, Barcelona, Madrid, New York, Munich, and Sao Paulo. Uh, so there is tons of information. And if that's not enough, just reach out to me. I'll be happy to answer any question you have. Excellent. Many thanks, Mark. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I uh, wish you the very best, both professionally and personally. Many thanks for being here with us today. Same to you, Patrick. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you and uh, stay healthy, all of you. Thanks. Thanks also to all of our listeners and remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.